This true crime podcast often depicts crimes against children, women, and other people in graphic detail and nature. Please, listener, discretion is advised. Police have identified more victims and plan on more than just the four murder charges filed today. Confirm earlier reports of cannibalism. The building was a scene of ghoulish slaughter. A large kettle on the stove which held boiled body parts. Identified more victims and killed even more. Plan on more than just the four murder charges filed today. Had sex with some of his victims before he killed them. And that he was also a necrophiliac. You are now listening to Grinding True Crimes with your host, Maddie Matt, Todd Fox, and Gabby Gabby. Hey, 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 welcome to another episode of the Grinding True Crimes podcast with your host, Maddie Matt, along with our narrator for today. And you're the host of the show, Todd Fox. And we are back live giving you another True Crimes story. But before we get into it, we want to let you guys know. But some of the details that we will be talking about in the story is could be uh, very disturbing for all the young ones that are old as well. So listener discussion is definitely advised. Uh, before we get into the story once again, I want to let you guys know where you can find us. Find us on Facebook, Instagram. Just type in the uh, Finding True Crime and you'll find us. Also, all your podcast streams, such as Spotify, uh, iTunes, Pandora. All those things you can find us. Just type in Grinding True Crime and you can listen to some of our past recordings that we've done in the past. Well, with that all being said, it is time for Gabby Gab to give us her story. And today, she's going to be talking about Ted Bundy. And this is going to be part one because from what she told me, she's got multiple parts to take care of. So let's give her our undivided attention. Gabby Gab. Ted Bundy is the case, well, in Matt's case, he didn't know, but... I have no clue. <laughs> almost everybody that I know knows about Ted Bundy. He was definitely broadcasted on the news a lot. So, Ted Bundy, his... I don't know how I should start this. He's known to be a serial killer. I'll just say that much. Okay. And this is who we're going to get into. He has a really long story, so listen to all our coming episodes. Um, he was born in July 1978, so we're going to get into his history first. He was born Theodore Robert Cornwell, or Cowell, Cowell, sorry, on November 24, 1946, in Burlington, Vermont, U.S. Okay. If you notice, I gave you two different dates of two different years. Yeah, you did. in 1978, that's when Bundy was born. And that's how he's known to be the serial killer. Uh, so he has two personalities. The actual man himself was born in 1946. Got it. Okay. So, his spouse, which I didn't know before. I don't know if you knew, Todd. I didn't know he was married. Yeah, I did. I didn't know he was married. Yeah. Wow, I was shocked when I read it. Her name is Carol Ann Boone. I had no idea. I thought he just had a bunch of girlfriends. Mm. He actually had one child. Really? Yeah, that I didn't know. Because I just know bits and pieces of Ted Bundy. Because, like you said, a lot of, you know, it's very well known. It's been done on Netflix and things like that. 
and the high profile of the case, but I never delve into, like, I only know 30% of the story. Matt's way more clueless than I am, so this is going to be new. Like I said, I, when y'all when y'all said Ted Bunny, I was thinking of Mary with children. I'm telling you. <laughs> <laughs> I have no clue. <laughs> yeah, this is one serial killer I didn't follow, like, out of the big ones in California. I didn't follow this one. Okay. I sort of did, not completely. So a lot of the things that I read on his story, I did not know about. Mm-hmm. But I definitely did not know about him being married. He apparently he got married in 1980, and six years later, in 1986, he got divorced. But he did have one child, mm. which was shocking to me. Mm. His parents were Jack Worthington, alleged father, Eleanor Louise Cowell, mother, and what? Johnny Culpepper Bundy, adopted. His crimes and stuff, but I'm not going to get into that yet because I want to leave people in suspense and you guys that. Well, whatever it is you guys don't know about him. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to go into his life, okay? Okay. So his childhood, he was born, like I told you, in 1946 to Eleanor Louise Cowell. Um, he was born at the Elizabeth Lund Home for Unwed Mothers mm. in Burlington, Vermont. His father's identity was never confirmed. His birth certificate said that they assigned paternity to a salesman and Air Force veteran named Lloyd Marshall. Mm. Though after accounts, in other accounts, um, his father is listed as unknown. Mm. Louise claimed she had been seduced by an old money war veteran named Jack Worthington. And the King County Sheriff's Office had him listed as the father in their files. Some family members expressed that it was suspicious maybe Bundy had been fathered by Louise's own violent abusive father. Samuel Cow, but there was never evidence about that. So, family thought her own dad was the dad of her son. Wow. Now, now if that's the case, that would make sense years later with everything. That's, I don't know. So, for the first three years of his life, he lived in Philadelphia with his maternal grandparents, Samuel and Eleanor Cowell. They raised him as their son in order to avoid stigma, you know, because the mom was not married and she had a baby. Mm-hmm. Ted, um, his family, friends, and Ted were told that the grandparents were his parents and that the mother was. So in his first years, he grew up thinking that's his sibling, not his mom. Mm. Eventually, he discovered the truth. He told a girlfriend that a cousin had shown him a copy of his birth certificate after calling him a bastard. But later when he was interviewed, he told bi- biographer Stephen McHoud and Hugh Ainsworth, man, these names, <laughs> that he found the certificate himself. So biographer and true crime writer Anne Rule, who knew Bundy personally, she believed that he didn't find out until 1969 when he located his original birth record in Vermont. He expressed a lifelong, lifelong resentment toward his mother for never telling him who the real father was and for leaving him to discover the truth on his own. So he was resentful toward his mother for that. I probably would too. I mean, you know, to find out who my real dad is, you know, especially growing up, probably he was teased like, oh, you don't have a dad. So, you know, I would probably feel resentful. I think I would too. I, I don't understand when parents don't tell their kids the truth. Like, it's going to be hurtful one way or another. Mm-hmm. But anyway, although the views on his grandparents were bad, um, 
Bundy spoke of them warmly. He told the interviewer that he identified with, respected, and clung to his grandfather. In 1987, though, he and other family members told attorneys that his dad, his legally his grandfather, but to him his dad was a tyrannical bully and a bigot who hated blacks, Italians, Catholics, and Jews. Well, he pretty much hated anybody. Yeah, he beat his wife and the family dog. Dang. And he would swung neighborhood cats by their tails. Oh, dude. On one occasion, he threw Luis's younger sister, Julia, down a flight of stairs for oversleeping. Oh, whoa. He sometimes spoke aloud to unseen presences, and at least once he flew into a violent rage when the question of Bundy's paternity came up. So this was Bundy's biological father? No, this is his grandparents. His grandparents. His, his grandfather, okay. The one family believed it's actually his dad. Yeah. But it's not confirmed, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, if he's acting like that, maybe. Maybe. Yeah, that's what I was thinking when I read all this. I wouldn't be surprised if he was that violent. Mm -hmm. But Bundy didn't think he was, so I don't understand. Where was he when all this was going on? Well, he ain't Bundy yet, right? Well, no, but that's how we know him, Ted Bundy. Got it. Bundy described his grandmother as a timid and obedient woman who peri periodically underwent electroconvulsive therapy for her depression. Wow. And feared to leave the house toward the end of her life. Bundy exhibited disturbing behavior at an early age. Julia recalls awakening from a nap to find herself surrounded by knives from the kitchen and Bundy standing by the bed smiling. What? Yes. Well, there we have it. Here's the start. So he was a a little creepy. Ooh. So now he's here in high school, 1965. In 1950, Louise changed her surname from Cowell to Nelson. And at the urging of the family members, she left Philadelphia with her son to live with cousins Ellen and Jane Scott in Tacoma, Washington. So this is when he finally, she took, uh, how do I say it? Like her responsibility as a parent and took um, her son with her. In 1951, Louise met Johnny Culpepper Bundy, a hospital cook at an adult singles night in Tacoma's First Methodist Church. They got married that year, and Johnny Bundy formally adopted Ted. So this is how he got his last name, Bundy. Oh, uh, I thought he had split personalities. So he was formally adopted by the, the husband of his mom now. They conceived four children of their own, and although Johnny tried to include his adoptive son in camping trips and other family activities, Ted remained distant. So Ted didn't really become close to his adopted father now. Got it. He later complained to his girlfriend that Johnny wasn't his real father. He wasn't very bright and he didn't make much money. Mm. So he criticized his stepdad, well, his adopted dad. Bundy's recollections of Tacoma are different. He described how he roamed the neighborhood, picking through trash barrels in search of pictures of naked women. He explained how he perused detective magazines, crime novels, and true crime documentaries for stories that involved sexual violence, particularly when the stories were illustrated with pictures of dead or maimed bodies. Oh. In a letter to the interviewer, the one that knows him, Rule, he said that never ever read back detective magazine magazines and shuddered at the thought that anyone would. 
He described how he would consume large quantities of alcohol and canvas the community late at night to find unraped widow windows, unraped, undraped, sorry. <laughs> unraped <laughs> windows? I didn't know they got raped. <laughs> He's gonna be like, let me rape those windows since they're unraped. <laughs> It won't sit still. <laughs> Jeez. That is very wrong. Undraped. Sorry. Undraped. Gotcha. Windows. Where he could observe women undressing or whatever he could see. So he was like a peeping Tom. Yeah, he he'd become a peeping Tom. Okay. But this sounds familiar. The evolution of a of a uh, of a murder. He's, he's yes. Going, going through the stages. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They are do the typical acts. Bundy also varied accounts of his social life. He said he chose to be alone as an adolescent because he wasn't able to understand interpersonal relationships. He mm. said he had a natural sense of how to develop friendships. His words were, I didn't know what made people want to be friends. I didn't know what underlay social interactions. Classmates from the high school he was in, uh, Woodrow Wilson High School, told the interviewer that Bundy was well-known and well-liked. A medium-sized fish in a large pond. So he was known to others. He was known. They knew who he was and he was liked. But in his view, he was a loner. He didn't understand that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Downhill skiing was the only significant athletic avocation that Bundy had. He enthusiastically pursued the activity by using stolen equipment and forged lift tickets. So that was a pretty much the only normal thing he was into, skiing, although he was stealing things. During high school, he was arrested at least twice on suspicion of burglary and auto theft. When he reached 18, the details of the incidents were expunged from his record, which apparently is customary in Washington. Uh, wow. And most other places too. Like if you commit juvenile crimes, it doesn't follow you into your adult life for whatever reason. Yeah, that's crazy, huh? Mm-hmm. Even 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 uh, sometimes murder can be expunged. Really? Yep. Get out. That is so stupid because that just gives stupid kids the freedom to do whatever they want, knowing that once they turn eighteen, that's all going to disappear. Yep. <laughs> Yep. We go to Washington. Well, I'm not 18. See, I'm not 18 <laughs> anymore. Too late. Dang it. <laughs> so he did go to university after he graduated from high school, which is also another common thing from the serial killers we've done. What? They all go to college. They're all educated. Well, I mean, college, you're open to do whatever you want. You know, you don't have supervision pretty much. I know, but it's just shocking that they're all educated men and do... Just because you go to college doesn't mean you're educated. Well, that puts you in education. It helps you get away with stuff. There you go. (laughs) After graduating high school in 1965, he attended the University of Puget Sound. Puget. I'm sorry. UPS is the... (laughs) For one year before transferring to the University of Washington to study Chinese. Okay. In 1967, he became romantically involved. So I guess this was his first relationship. Because remember, he didn't understand relationships. Mm-hmm. With a UW classmate who was identified as Stephanie Brooks. In early 1968, he dropped out of college and worked at a series of minimum wage jobs. And he also volunteered at the Seattle office 
of Nelson Rockefeller's presidential campaign. Okay. He became Arthur Fletcher's driver and bodyguard during Fletcher's campaign for lieutenant governor in Washington State. Okay. So, so far, he's having a successful life. Yeah. Okay. So, this seemed like a good job, driver and bodyguard for somebody running for governor. I'll take it. In August, he attended the 1968 Republican National Convention in Miami as Rockefeller's delegate. Shortly after, Brooks ended the relationship and returned to her family in California, frustrated by what she described as Bundy's immaturity and lack of ambition. So the girlfriend dumped him. He was devastated by the rejection. So he traveled to Colorado and then farther east, visiting relatives in Arkansas and Philadelphia. And he enrolled for one semester at the Temple University this is where in early 1969 the um, interviewer rule thinks that bundy visited the office of the birth records that's where he mm. found out about his parentage mm. bundy was back in washington by the fall of 1969 when he met elizabeth clover she was identified in Bundy's literature as Meg Anders, Beth Archer, or Liz Kendall. So he had like three different names for her. Wow. A divorcee from Ogden, Utah, who worked as secretary at the University of Washington School of Medicine. Their stormy relationship would continue well past the initial incarceration in Utah in 1976. Okay. So, so far, this relationship seems to go on for years. All right. In mid-1970, he focused and goal-oriented, re-enrolled in UW again, this time as a psychology major. He became an honor student and was well-regarded by his professors. In 1971, he took a job in Seattle Suicide Hotline Crisis Center, where he met and worked alongside Anne Rule, which is the interviewer that knows him. She was a former Seattle police officer. Okay. Rule saw nothing disturbing in Bundy's personality at a time and described him as kind, solicitous, and empathetic. After graduating from UW in 1972, Bundy joined Governor Daniel J. Evans' re-election campaign. Okay, so he, he's, so he's, he's actually having a pretty good life right now. Yeah, yeah, right. Right now, he's he's getting politically involved too. Like he's rising up the. I know this part. He he gets very um, high up in the political scene. Wow. So uh, I'm interested to see what flipped his mind. I mean, what made him become? I'm assuming a serial killer. Yeah, he. I mean, right here, going for a major in psychology. That's what I mean by he's really becoming educated. Yeah. Now I see what you mean by that. So after he graduated in 1972, as I mentioned, he joined Governor Daniel J. Evans' re-election campaign. Posting as a college student, he shadowed Evans' opponent, Governor Albert Rossellini, and recorded his stump speeches for analysis by Evans' team. Evans appointed Bundy to the Seattle Crime Prevention Advisory Committee. After Evans was reelected, Bundy was hired as an assistant to Ross Davis, 
chairman of the Washington State Republican Party. Davis thought well of Bundy, and he described him as smart, aggressive, and a believer in the system. Mm. Then in 1973, despite the mediocre LSAT scores, Bundy was accepted into the law school of UPS and the University of Utah. Because he had strong letters of recommendation from Evans, Davis, and several UW psychology professors. Wow. So he really is educated. So, yeah, his scores weren't great, but he had all these people recommending him that were high ranked. So he, that's why he was accepted. Hmm. So now he's going to law school. During the trip to California on the Republican Party, the summer of 1973, he rekindled his relationship with Brooks. So she got back with him. I guess he was smarter now mm. <laughs> and more <laughs> She marveled at his transformation into a serious, dedicated professional who was seemingly on the cusp of legal and political career. So he continued to date Clover as well. Neither girl knew about each other. So he's still in his relationship, long-term relationship with the other woman. And he got back with his ex-girlfriend, Brooks. Well, he was a player player. <laughs> yeah, he was. Okay, buddy. In the fall of 1973, he matriculated at UPS Law School and continued courting Brooks. Then she flew to Seattle several times to stay with him. They discussed marriage at one point, and he introduced her to Davis and his fiance. So... He's been with Clover longer, but he is talking about marriage with Brooks and in introducing her as his woman to, you know, the high-ranked yeah. people. Wow. Hmm. In January 1974, he abruptly broke off all contact. Her phone calls and letters went unreturned. Finally, a month later, she reached him over the phone, and Brooks demanded to know why Bundy had un, un how she described it unilaterally I don't know what that means she ended he ended their relationship without an explanation I guess abruptly yeah I guess so in a flat calm voice he replied to her Stephanie I have no idea what you mean and hung up on her she never heard from him again wow Later on, he explains that he just wanted to prove himself that he could have married her. That's all he wanted. Brooks concluded in retrospect that he had deliberately planned the entire courtship and rejection as advance as vengeance because she had broken up with him in 1968. Wow. So he did it out of spite. Jeez. By then, Bundy started skipping classes at law school, and by April, he had stopped attending completely as young women began to disappear in the Pacific Northwest. Uh-oh. <laughs> so this is where his flip starts. Uh-oh. Well, first of all, first of all, he only married her and got with her just to get back with her. He because, didn't even marry her. Well, well, you're right. He didn't marry her. But he got back with her just to be like, yeah, I can marry you. But I don't want nothing to do with you. Just to prove himself that he could have her if he wanted to. Like, I can have her if I feel like it. Wow. What a great guy. What a great right? guy. 
And his reply was so cold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what you talking about? <laughs> Get off. <laughs> That's wrong. Dang. All right. Sorry about that. All right. So I'm going to get into, if we have time, guys, into the first two series of murders. Okay. So I'll start with Washington, Oregon. It says there is no consensus of when or where he started killing women, okay? Okay. This is just what is known as the beginning. He told different stories to different people, and he didn't give specifics of the early crimes. Even as he confessed in graphic detail to dozens of the murders later on. He told Nelson, who was the interviewer then, that he attempted his first kidnapping in 1969. So that was only a year after Brooks had broken up with him. Mm. So this was before his entire career had started going, you know? Interesting in Ocean City, New Jersey, but he did not kill anybody until sometime in 1971. So as you can see, he was already killing when all of his, the high of his life was going on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He told psychologist Art Norman that he killed two women in Atlantic City in 1969 while visiting family in Philadelphia. Wow. He hinted, but refused to elaborate to homicide detective Robert D. Keppel that he committed the murder in Seattle in 1972 and another murder in 1973 that involved a hitchhiker near Tumwater. Rule, who I talked about before, the interviewer that knows him, and Keppel both thought that maybe he started killing as a teenager. So they don't believe that during the time he said he started that it was true. They Mm. think since he was very young, he started killing. Interesting. Circumstantial evidence suggested that he may have abducted and killed eight-year-old Anne-Marie Burr of Tacoma when he was only 14 years old in 1961. Jeez. An allegation that he repeatedly denied. His earliest documented homicides were committed in 1974 when he was 27 years old. And by then, by his own admission, he had mastered the necessary skills to leave minimal incriminating forensic evidence at crime scenes. So he already knew not to leave his DNA, and this is before DNA profiling. Wow. So see what I mean? Educated. Oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, yeah, it kind of makes sense he would kill before, because if he's admitting he mastered it by then, then he had practiced before. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. I definitely with them. I believe that he started really early. Unless he killed animals. You know, most serial killers are creeps like that. They practice animals before they hit humans. Yep. Shortly after midnight, January 4th, 1974, around the time where he ended the relationship with Brooks, he entered the basement of an apartment of 18-year-old Karen Sparks. Identified as Joni Lenz, Mary Adams and Terry Caldwell by various sources. I don't understand all this where people are identified with so many names. <laughs> she yeah, was a dancer down. and a student at UW where he was going. After bludgeoning Sparks senseless with a metal rod from her bed frame, he sexually assaulted her with either the same rod 
or a metal speculum. Oh. Causing extensive internal injuries. Yeah. She remained unconscious for 10 days, but she survived. <gasps> yeah, that's shocking, right? Wow. She survived with permanent physical and mental disabilities. Oh, poor thing. Dang. In the early morning hours of February 1st, Bundy broke into the basement room of Linda Ann Healy, another UW undergraduate. Um, he beat her unconscious, dressed her in blue jeans, a white blouse and boots, and he carried her away. Okay. Yeah, that's odd. During the first half of 1974, female college students started disappearing at the rate about one per month. Dang. On March 12, Donna Gail Manson, a 19-year-old student at the Evergreen State College in Olympia, 60 miles southwest of Seattle, left her dormitory to attend jazz concert on the campus, but she never arrived. On April 17, Susanne Elaine Rancourt disappeared while on her way down to her dorm room after an evening advisors meeting at the Central Washington State College. Two Two female Central Washington students later came forward to report encounters, one on the night of Rancourt's disappearance and the other one three nights earlier, with a man wearing an arm sling asking for help carrying a load of books to his brown or tan Volkswagen Beetle. On May 6, Roberta Kathleen Parks left her dormitory at Oregon State University in Corvallis to have coffee with friends at the Memorial Union, but she never arrived. So all these girls are college students who are heading somewhere to meet somebody. And that's how people know their disappearance because they never show up. Mm. Detectives from the King County and Seattle Police Departments were concerned, increasingly concerned. There was no physical evidence and the missing women had little in common, apart from being young, attractive white college students with long hair parted in the middle. On June 1st, Brenda Carol Ball, 22, disappeared after she left the Flame Tavern in Burien near Seattle. She was last seen in the parking lot talking to a brown-haired man with his arm in a sling. So wow. this is the same description of the man that the other ones had encounters with. In the early hours of June 11, a UW student, Georgianne Hawkins, vanished while she was walking down a brightly lit alley between her boyfriend's dormitory residence and her sorority house. The next morning, three Seattle homicide detectives and criminalists combed the entire alleyway on their hands and knees, finding nothing. So absolutely no evidence of wow. anything. And all they had was the description of the guy? Nothing on the car or anything? Wow. Just the Volkswagen and the guy in a sling was the same. Jeez. After Hawkins' disappearance was publicized, witnesses came forward to report seeing a man that night who was in the alley behind the, the dormitory. He was on crutches with a leg cast and was struggling to carry a briefcase. One woman recalled that he asked her to help him carry the keys to his car, a light brown Volkswagen Beetle. Later on, Bundy told Keppel that he had lured Hawkins to his car before rendering her unconscious with a crowbar. He had earlier placed beside the vehicle. So uh, right here, they're talking about crimes that he confessed to, okay? Okay. Then he handcuffed her and drove her to Issaquah, 
where he had strangled her before spending the entire night with her body. Prior to her murder, Hawkins had regained consciousness inside the car and began talking with Bundy, who recollected she had informed him that she had a Spanish test the following day and she thought that he had taken her to help tutor her for the Spanish test. And these were the effects of her getting blunted in the head, you know? Poor thing. Adding, it's not funny, but it's odd the kinds of things people will say under those circumstances. That's what Bundy said. Yeah. He admitted to revisiting Hawkins' corpse on three occasions. And he returned to the UW alley the morning after her abduction and murder. There, in the midst of the major crime scene, he located and gathered her earrings and one of her shoes where he had left them in the adjoining parking lot and departed unobserved. Wow. So here we have an issue with police, as usual, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. police stupidity, because those things were left there. She went missing and they went through the entire alley and found nothing. Not the, not the earrings that he knew where they were or the shoe. He just went straight and found them and took them. Yeah, he's like, oh, well, they left these here. Let me just. <laughs> this is my collection. Wow. There's always somebody, huh? That's not doing their job. Yep. And they said they got on their hands and knees. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, they didn't see all those things. Yeah, I don't. I don't believe that. They probably were like, man, it's cold out here. It's raining. Uh, <laughs> you don't see anything on like on the surface. Let's just go, Johnson. Let's go, Johnson. <laughs> I heard there's this new coffee place called Starbucks. Let's go. Let's go play, pay for some overpriced coffee. And that's how Starbucks was made. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, idiots. During this period, Bundy was working um, in Olympia as the assistant director of the Seattle Crime Prevention Advisory Commission. Oh, geez. Where he wrote a pamphlet, Rape Prevention. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah, basically, when OJ wrote his book about if I would have done it, you know, Ted Bundy's, like, Ted Bundy's like, you know what? If I was to rape a person, this is how I would do it. So you might as well want to look for this. Wow, man. The people you trust. That's what I'm telling you, you can't trust anybody. This is the man they trusted to help women in these situations, and he was the one doing it. I know the well, cops are probably like, this guy's pretty smart. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Later, he worked at the Department of Emergency Services, a state government agency involved in the search of missing women. (laughs) There, he met and dated Carol Ann Boone, the woman he married, a twice-divorced mother of two who six years later would play an important role in the final phase of his life. Wow. So this is where he met his wife. I'm going to leave you guys there. And I will okay. not go any further. Interesting. Some suspense for what happens next. See, this setup for me is just—it's eerie with some of the other ones that we've talked about, like you've brought up, Gabby. And um, it's just—it blows my mind now that, like, this is an educated man now, not like most of the serial killers we've covered, but this is an educated guy who already has a leg up for being educated on the police, but the police being that dumb between the seventies and eighties. So <laughs> yeah. he, had, he had several legs. I mean, he was like Usain Bolt racing a white guy. He's going <laughs> to win by a mile. 
You know what I mean? Like it's gonna be so disrespectful to the police, Todd. They just want in the I'm just saying it would take Usain Bolt, Ted Bundy, to trip on something for the cops to actually catch up to him. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> oh, man. It, 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 it seems like in every story where there's a serial killer, there's always an incident where police stupidity comes into play. Yeah. yeah. I'm not saying they would have found who it was that murdered her at the time, but I'm just saying they left some evidence and he just came into the crime scene just, you know, oh, but here I go. Here's the thing. They could have found who he was because there was already the description of his car. Mm -hmm. He had her. He knew where she was. So if he had pieces of her clothes, which was probably the other shoe, let's say, mm -hmm. and they were looking for whoever owned that car around there, they would have found him or at least questioned him, at least searched his car. If they had found the evidence where they were looking to begin with, then, oh, he has the other shoe. We have the other shoe. You know what I mean? Like, there could have been connections, even though there was no DNA. But what I'm saying is, how would have known? Because plenty of girls had already described the same type of person that might have lured the ones who went missing. Yeah, they didn't follow up on things. And then and then Gabby was mentioning three different counties. You know, there's, there's King County. Uh, I think you mentioned Issaquah and then Washington University probably has its own police too. None of those police agencies back then, again, the big problem was they never talked or shared information. So that could have played a part. And then like Gabby said, which is really dumb, they have a general description. If they just match it up to other cases, they could see it. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing too is with, I mean... This is blowing my mind already when she just got started. The fact that, you know, um, he's inserting himself into these cases by being on the board of missing people. Like, like that true, yeah. you know, like, like if someone shows like, say, for instance, they always say never when you, when you want a, a, a parent to um, to uh, coach your, your son or your, your, your kids softball or football team you don't want the the guy coming up like oh man i brought orange slices and capri sun and all this other stuff i'm ready to go for the season no you want the dad to go in there the coach to be like oh do i really have to do this you know i could be watching football <laughs> this weekend you know what i mean like you don't want that the makes, eager guy that makes sense it, it seemed like he was eager to be a part of those uh professions that yeah, he was obviously trying to get the spotlight off of him. Because mm -hmm. nobody's going to suspect, oh, okay, this guy is a rape prevention person. I don't think he would do it, you know. But but if they just matched up the fact that, hey, the rape prevention guy kind of fits the <laughs> description of the guy who's raping the women. <laughs> but, but, but the rape would... prevention guy knows how they should prevent him yeah. how does he know how does he know <laughs> if you see a guy with a sling do not go up to him well how did you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's like by the way what, what's your background and expertise like how did you figure this out like ask a question yes i would have wondered i would have been asking like well how do you know so much what year was this this was the 60s they were they weren't they weren't thinking about that 70. oh the 70 they still weren't thinking about that yeah that's the thing police wasn't so motivated back then it was so like they didn't really it was a job a real effort it was a job it yeah it was just your status and your money mm -hmm. i agree i agree because well the moral of this story is if you see somebody with a sling and they're asking you to help them get something in the car 
walk by. <laughs> yeah, at least at that time period. Good grief, man. Sure, even now, somebody coming to me, excuse me, can you help me? Help me. I, I can't. Nope. <laughs> Find a way. Find a way, Johnson. <laughs> No, you'd be suspicious right off the bat because you're like, wait a minute, you're asking a black guy to help you? I mean, there's something going on here. What's going on here? You would racially profile yourself. What's your last name? If it's Dahmer? Nope, I can't help you. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. All right. Well, this is the first part. Here and all these showing signs of crazy. He is. You already see it. Yeah. So what? This is so far two confirmed murders. Um. Well, yeah. This is one he definitely confesses, confesses. to and gives details about. Got the it. But there are possibly multiple ones. Yeah. In the beginning, they're mentioning all of the disappearances that they were attributing to him. Mm. But I will not tell you which ones he confessed to and which ones were clear. That it was him until the end. Well, then, that, you know what that means. Y'all got to stay tuned to find out the rest of the story. This was part one of Ted Bundy. Brought to us in part by Miss Gabby. And we are going to end it here. But before we end it, I want to let you guys know where you can listen to us and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Just type in the Grinding True Crime Podcast and you will find us there as well as uh, on your podcast streams, such as Spotify, iTunes, Pandora, all, et cetera. You can listen to our past stuff on, just type in the Grinding True Crime Podcast. So with that all being said, this is your host, Maddie Matt, along with our narrator. Gabby. And the other host of the show. Todd Fox. And we are signing off and hoping you guys have a good rest of your day. Toodles. Later. All right, clear. Cool. <laughs> Why were you laughing at me in the beginning? Because I said our past stuff.